Genesis chapter 39. We're looking uh, still at the life of Joseph, and uh, we're going to have kind of an overview of this chapter. We're not going to do specifically verse by verse. We're picking up a little bit where we left off last week, talking about the life of Joseph. And um, in chapter 39, you remember he's a slave in Egypt. And so we're going to talk this morning about um, temptation and God's favor on Joseph. Um, Last week, he was sold off by his brothers to Ishmaelite traders. Um, The brothers lied to their dad, uh, deceived him intentionally uh, to make him think that Joseph was killed and gone forever, that a wild animal by chance had gotten him. And today we're going to look at some uh, some pretty heavy themes, crushing humiliation um, in, in, this, in his life, God's steadfast love at the same time, uh, deceitfulness, and courageous service to God. Uh, so let me uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll start. Father, we thank you for this day that you have set aside for us to worship you and to rest in your covenant faithfulness to us. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning by your spirit as we open our Bibles and study uh, the book of Genesis, as we talk about Joseph and your covenant faithfulness to him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and that you who uh, remain steadfast are steadfast with us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I want to begin with some questions this morning. I ended with some last week, and I want to begin with some, and we're going to talk through a few of these themes um, throughout the study this morning. But I want to begin by asking you four questions. The first is, uh, and you don't have to answer this, this is something to think about and we'll discuss. What is your default response or your default mode uh, when you are dealt a bad hand in life. And I'll give some options, uh, and maybe there are others. But uh, many times when people go through difficulty, they draw inward. Um, They seclude themselves from other people. They don't want others involved, and so they turn inward. Uh, Maybe not to look for strength, but it's just a a, a reaction. Um, Is it faith? Is it to to press you in closer and deeper with the Lord uh, that you know loves you? Or is it anger? Um, Anger at the situation, maybe anger at those who are involved. Uh, It comes out in the way that you might treat them. Uh, Maybe even anger at God. And that comes out in in how you you live and speak and even the way that you speak about Him. Uh, Secondly, how do you deal with situations that require patience? Uh, And I know that for many of us, probably the answer is not very well. Um, Patience is not easy. Um, It's not anything that you're going to have on your shopping list this week. And it's definitely not anything you're going to be able to get in a grocery pickup. Maybe for some of us, patience, um, situations that require patience, um, draws out in us a complaining spirit. The way that we handle it is to complain about the waiting or to complain about all that we're going through and uh, maybe even a woe is me kind of uh, response. Or are you prayerful? Does it really push you to your knees, drive you into your Heavenly Father's presence because you know there's nothing I can do here, uh, nothing in my hands I can bring to you, Lord. This situation is more than I can bear, and it's, it's mastering me more than I can even maneuver. Thirdly, are you willing to serve God in ways and in places that you w- never would have imagined on your own? 
It's one thing to say, Lord, I'll serve you right here. This land that you've given me is a nice broad land. It is a beautiful place. And I would love to serve you here the rest of my days. But what if God called you to be somewhere else? What if he changed the scenery, put you in a different place where the faces were not so familiar or friendly? Uh, Or even think about some of our brothers and sisters around the world. What if uh, the Lord called you to go to a place where they didn't even speak English? Uh, would Would your heart be as steadfast in serving the Lord? And lastly, does your hope in future exaltation satisfy your heart even when you are facing current and significant humiliation? And I'll ask that again because it's kind of a long sentence. Does your hope in future exaltation satisfy your heart even when you are facing current significant humiliation? And all of these questions I'm kind of drawing from the text in the book of Genesis chapter 39 as we think about uh, Joseph. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about his, his family heritage and um, who he came from. And we need to keep that in mind as we think about what's happening in his life here because it does have uh, a bearing on what's going on in Joseph's life. But remember, I mentioned this, and I don't think it's possible to stress it enough, that the characters in the Old Testament, narratives in the Old Testament, were not written so that we would find a good, moral, strong character who we should try to emulate. Um, The Old Testament is written as a narrative, as a story of real events that took place Real people who went through situations and how they trusted God or walked away from Him or walked the fine line of kind of dipping their toes on both sides uh, throughout their lives. It's not written for us to say, be a good Joseph and not a bad Potiphar. Um, it, is, it is simply not written that way. It's, that's not for our benefit that way at all. Um, and I heard a, a message this week about this uh, story. And let me just begin by asking you, and I think you'll probably give the answer that I would give if I was asked, cold turkey, what, uh, what is the purpose of Joseph being preserved in the land of Egypt? What was God doing? And you can think about uh, the end of the story with him, but what was God doing? Why was it significant that Joseph would be preserved in the land of Egypt? He's going to be there to, yeah, to help preserve the people because what's happening or what's going to happen? A famine. Yes. And specifically, who in his family? His father? His brothers? And who was the brother, uh, the significant brother, who needed to be preserved uh, for the sake of the heritage of God's people? Think about your genealogies. Judah. Yes. And who was Judah's mom? Bible scholars? Leah. We read that a few weeks ago that at the at the end of her child uh, bearing, she said um, that she named him Judah. She said, I will yet praise you. And he was not the firstborn. So here is another example in the scriptures of someone who is not the firstborn being given a place of prominence and what you might call a a special blessing from God to preserve a family, Uh, that he would be the one who would receive the blessing. Who had we seen that with previously, the week prior? His dad, right? His dad. um, he, He stole from 
from Esau. He was a supplanter. Um, he deceived his own dad. And Esau is out working. And uh, Jacob takes the advice of his mother, Rebekah, and deceives his, his dad, takes the blessing, and then has to run away. And so here we have Joseph uh, having been hated by his brothers because of his gift that God had given him. And it was confirmed to be a gift from God because not only did he have one dream, he had two. And in his life, he has three different pairs, significant pairs of dreams that he either has himself or he interprets. And so this is something that you might call um, a burden for him to bear in one sense because it caused him to be uh, thrown out of his family circle for many years. It was not something that you would say he carried with him and was happy about all the time. I imagine he had a lot of questions. Lord, why did you give this to me at such a risk to my own uh, family heritage? I'm now here in the land of Egypt. I was sold uh, into slavery. I didn't ask for this. And here he is with his gift. And so I want to I talk this morning uh, about God's grip on his life. I also do want to see what I believe is some learning of humiliation and learning of humility. Because I don't think it, it, it was natural for Joseph. I think he, he, did, um, he did believe what he saw in his dreams. He thought his brothers and his dad would bow down to him. And uh, I think that was significant in his life. I don't think he carried that gift so um, humbly at first when he shared it with his brothers. And lastly, I want to talk about um, God's plan in, in his life and how God used him, maybe even despite his, his pride or lack of humility. Um, in this chapter, Genesis chapter 39, it's clear that in a matter of moments, Joseph, is, he leaves the care of his father's embrace and becomes a slave or a servant immediately. But God ministered to Joseph even while he was in Egypt. Even while he was there, it says in verse 2 that the Lord was with him. And again in verse 2 it says that his master saw that the Lord was with him. Now, I don't know if we can say for sure that this means the master is testifying to the goodness of the Israelite God. But he is at least testifying that there is a special presence with Joseph, this one who's serving in his house, that is different from all the other people who were there serving. Joseph's faith was not stagnant in God. He, was a, he is a covenant son. He heard from his dad what it means to belong to the God of Israel, the one who makes covenant promises and keeps them. It was absolutely bolstered in this time. And that's why I asked you a few moments ago to reflect on what do you do in times of significant uh, bad hands being dealt to us in life? How do we handle them? Because this is exactly where Joseph is living as he's in the land of Egypt. If God is sovereign and God is in control, then he brought this into my life. And what do I do with it? So that's my next point that I, I want to talk through is God's sovereign control in his life. He was in the house of an Egyptian master. He was serving there. He could have been put in a salt mine. He could have gone into a prison somewhere else. He could have been out in obscurity somewhere in some faraway corner of Egypt. And yet God in his sovereign control put him right there. He put him in Potiphar's house to be a servant, to serve. He became an overseer in that house. Um, it, according to the Lord's providence, he becomes a, a successful man. Serving in that home. In verse 4 he is an overseer. And he left all that he had in charge of Joseph. 
in, in Joseph's charge, and he had no concern for anything. In verse 6, God is absolutely in charge of what's happening to him. So I want to ask you, in the midst of, in the midst of this, knowing that, that God has his grip on Joseph, what is it that holds you in the midst of difficulty to cause you to, to remain in God's grip? And I don't mean what can you do to cause God to keep his hold on you, but how do you lay hold of the promises that you have even in the midst of difficulty? What is it that sustains you there? And I want to read a quote to you, um, and maybe maybe even a few. But I, I want to read a little bit about patience. This is from John Piper's book, Future Grace. Um, and it's directly connected to our thoughts about patience or impatience, faith or lack of faith. And all of us, in one way or another, we are either walking into a difficult situation, we are walking in the midst of it, or the Lord has seen fit to guide us out of a di- difficult situation. That all of us, it, it takes, no one is left out of this in life. And so we, each of us are in one of those stages. But Piper says, patience is the capacity to wait and endure without murmuring and disillusionment. To wait in the unplanned place and endure the unplanned pace. Carl Olson uses one key adjective that points to the power behind patience. He says, we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that things will be better tomorrow. I wonder if we can understand such patience. Surely we cannot if temporal hope is the only kind we have. But if there is a hope beyond this temporal life, if future grace extends all the way to eternity, then there may may be a profound understanding of such patience in this life. And it seems like there are some folks in, in the Lord's providence in his church who demonstrate this grace in a special way, particularly in times of great sorrow. And you stand back and are at awe. And I have been there, unable to say anything about it, except maybe through tears. Praise the Lord for your faith in Him. There's nothing I can say to encourage you. I can't make this better. I wish I could. But praise the Lord for His grace in your life. And you hear testimony of God's faithfulness to a family or to an individual. And you stand back and say, how could you walk through this with such grace? And the person says to you, only by God's grace. This is not me. This is Him in my life. He's preserving me and my family and my faith. He's the one giving me the care that I need to be patient. Piper goes on to say, in fact, it is precisely the hope of future grace beyond this life that carries the saints perfectly and patiently through their afflictions. Paul made this crystal clear in his own life. He said, we do not lose heart. That is, we don't succumb to murmuring and impatience. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he's quoting from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Those are uh, significant, weighty words, uh, particularly for people who are going through present affliction. And this is right where Joseph is, and it's, it is, if we're honest, right where some of us are even this morning. 
We came to church this morning not because burdens had been lifted. We came in spite of burdens. We came carrying them with us. And we come to praise the Lord, to be with His people, to be obedient. But we come carrying a weight with us. And I don't mean to say that I think people are being disobedient and not giving their burdens over to the Lord. I just mean that in the natural course of life, how you are walking and how I am walking, there is a tension between us walking by faith and not by sight, giving our burdens over to the Lord, casting our cares on Him, and wanting to hold them ourselves. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about last week, where we are in the middle of not only this spiritual life that God has given us to follow Him and to love Him and to walk with Him, but we are also fighting the battle that our, our culture is telling us we are responsible to define who we are. And so if you're responsible to define who you are and your destiny is in your hands, then present affliction is fighting against the best you that you think you can be. And so if affliction for you and for me is something that is adversity for us to not be able to become what we believe we're supposed to be, to define who we are, then how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with anyone who gets in the way? What's the default response? I need to get this over as fast as possible. This needs to end because it's a roadblock. It's a barrier. I can't be there where I need to be with this in my way. And if anybody else along the way seems to want to slow things down or not be a blessing to me and help me through this, then they need to move out of the way too because that's my destiny. What I have set up as the goal for my life, that's where I need to go. And anything that's in the way has to move or be moved. Right? But what do we see with, with Joseph here? And I know he's a young man. He's probably terrified in the land of Egypt. But one thing that at least I don't see or hear, at least in the, in the pages of the Bible, is him scrapping or fighting and trying to get back to his dad. I don't hear anything about a jailbreak or doing things to, to use his position so that he can get out. I'm not saying he's given up. I don't think he's given up his faith at all. Uh, you see that later in his life and how he chose to even name his sons Hebrew names. Even though he had been given an Egyptian name, he names his sons very particularly Hebrew names. But what I'm, what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to get to is I believe that there was a, a firm, a solid foundation of faith in the Lord that guided him even in the midst of living in Egypt, a place where uh, the person who was in charge believed in his own head that he was a god. And people worshipped him that way. And yet I believe the Lord held Joseph in his grip, even in Potiphar's house, in, in prison. He held him in his hand and he did not let him go. And I don't believe it was because, well, look at Joseph's great faith or look how the Lord rewarded him. Uh, that's why you can see him succeeding in life. That's what took place. That's what won the day for him. If you will just be a good Joseph, if you can have faith and stand up in the face of difficulty, you will have the same kind of life that Joseph did. That's not true. There are people who have great faith and who go through very great difficulty and they die in the midst of that difficulty having never been delivered from it right so being a good joseph and and just bearing up just put a smile on just just do your best don't let people know I, that's those are lies from from the pit of hell 
Those are not true. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't try to, to work through situation. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm, I'm saying there is no promise in the scriptures that if you just look your best and do your best and try hard and be a person of integrity, that things will just work out. They may not. They may not. You may stay in the land of Egypt. The, the land of your affliction may be the place that you spend the rest of your life. But God was doing a particular work here to preserve a family and to preserve a particular seed out of Jacob's house, Judah, as we'll see later, much later on in the story. I want to talk, too, about Joseph's uh, humiliation and what he went through. And I'm thinking about this in terms of what we talked about last week regarding people affirming or not affirming the identity that we want to take on for ourselves, and what our culture talks to us about this. So Joseph is living in humiliation here. He went through an ongoing attack of propositions from Potiphar's wife. It's clear this was not a one-time thing. This wasn't an event that came and, and went. It says that he was a servant in Potiphar's house, so he would have been dressed a certain way. Everybody knew who he was in terms of him being a servant. And daily he went through battering from Potiphar's wife. In verse 7 and verse 10, there were lies and fabrication that she told. Uh, she even made up a story of why she had his clothes in verse 14 and 17. And immediately, Potiphar goes into a fit of anger and throws Joseph into prison in verse 19 to 20. And there's some subtle questioning of his character that happens here. And even of his God. Because Potiphar, it says, had acknowledged that there was a special presence in his life. And I wonder if this is some of the conversation that went on between Joseph and, and Potiphar's wife. Some of the stuff that just grinded at him daily. And this happens for many of us, maybe even if it's just in our own homes. Maybe you don't go to work every day. But this is something that, that grinds at our integrity, at our heart before the Lord. I, at least these are some of the things that I think could have come up. Well, come on, Joseph, you're not a kid anymore. You're not at home. Live a little bit. Who's going to know? Your God has abandoned you. You can't be farther from God's people. You're in Egypt. Why be so legalistic about this? It's just sex, after all. That's all that it is. It's, it's nothing more than a physical act. My husband won't find out. You can trust me. I will tell the truth. I, I imagine that some of that came off of her lips. He, and it, after all of this, he loses his master's favor, his position of service, and his God's name is marred in the midst of the scandal. Maybe. I don't know that anyone cursed Jehovah because of Joseph's actions or inactions. But it's clear that everybody who was in charge believed exactly what Potiphar's wife said. So I want to I want to ask you, and I'm I'm going to kind of make a little bit of a hard turn here, uh, for just a moment. I want to I want to ask you about what we talked about uh, over the last couple of weeks regarding identity, and who we are, and why it's so significant for us today to not just hear what people say about who they are, uh, but also why it has to be accepted, why it must be accepted. Uh, not just as something that can be acceptable in society, but something that, that also requires something to be given to them by everyone in society. And I want to read a quote, and I'm quoting from the book I read a couple weeks ago, other quotes to you from. Um, this is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, Carl 
R. Truman. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back just a, a little bit so that you get kind of the sense of the, the, the topic here. Why would I need my neighbors to affirm my homosexuality is a good thing? He's asking the question, not for him, but hypothetical. Uh, to use the matter of cake baking, Mr. Bunn, the Christian cake baker, may not be willing to make a cake for my gay wedding, but he will sell me his baked goods in general and will even recommend to me a baker who will fulfill my wedding requirements. His policy on wedding cakes is not going to cause me to starve or even require that I travel great distances to avail myself of baked goods. Why should such amicable tolerance of my homosexuality not suffice? Surely a situation whereby my identity is tolerated by others in a manner that allows me to go about my daily business would seem to be a reasonable state of affairs. Yet the history of the sexual, or perhaps even better, the identity revolution has clearly not played out in quite such a fashion. So you see what's hanging in the tension there. Not just simply that a person who claims to be a homosexual and they're allowed to move about throughout society, be able to to go and buy goods and services on the shelf like anybody else. But when it's attached to having a wedding ceremony, he's saying now there's significance. This person who owns the cake shop um, has a responsibility not just to sell the service but to affirm the identity of the person who's coming to buy. This is, this is significant. He, he says, in fact, precisely such a scenario as that outlined above led to one of the most contentious and divisive Supreme Court cases of recent years. It is clearly indisputable that mere tolerance of sexual identities that break with the heterosexual norm has not proved an acceptable option to the sexual revolutionaries. Nothing short of full equality under the law and full recognition of the legitimacy of certain non-traditional sexual identities by wider society has emerged as the ambition of the LGBTQ plus movement. It is not enough that I can buy a wedding cake somewhere in town. I must be able to buy a wedding cake from each and every baker in town whoever caters for weddings. Why is this the case? This is his question. One could build an answer to this question on one aspect of Philip Reif's definition of traditional culture, that it normally directs the self outward to communal purposes in which it can find satisfaction, but that this direction has clearly been reversed in the era of psychological man. Satisfaction and meaning, what he's calling authenticity, are now found by an inward turn, and the culture is reconfigured to this end. So you turn inward to find your identity. The culture then has to come back and affirm that and confirm that, celebrate it, rejoice in it. Not only in the ideal, but also in how it's embraced in everything that happens. Indeed, it must now serve the purpose of meeting my psychological needs, the culture, not people, the culture itself. I must not tailor my psychological needs to the nature of society, for that would create anxiety and make me inauthentic. The refusal to bake me a wedding cake, therefore, is not an act consistent with the therapeutic ideal. In fact, it is the opposite an act causing me psychological harm. This is therefore an outward social dimension to my psychological well-being that demand others acknowledge my inward psychological identity. We all as individuals still inhabit the same social spaces, still interact with other individuals, and so these other individuals must be coerced to be part of our therapeutic world. 
The era of psychological man therefore requires changes in the culture and its institutions, practices, and beliefs that affect everyone. They all need to adapt to reflect a therapeutic mentality that focuses on the psychological well-being of the individual. Rife calls this social, uh, societal characteristic the analytical attitude. I won't read any more. That's just part of about a page and a half. Uh, but I, I want to ask about this in terms of what was going on in Potiphar's house. Uh, was this simply a conflict of opportunity for Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Or, or was there an, an identity that she was hoping he would celebrate and enjoy and rejoice in with her? I'm married. Potiphar is my husband. But I have the freedom... Because I say so, I have the freedom to take advantage of any opportunity with you or anyone else who's in this house. And because he would not take part in it, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do what she was asking and wouldn't celebrate what she was hoping to step into. All bets are off. Talk about you can trust me. I'll turn the tables on you and we'll see that you never cross me again. That's not really any different than what we just talked about with the Supreme Court case. And the, the, the cake shop that decided, no, we can't make the wedding cake because we can't celebrate this event with you. We, we certainly affirm you as a person. We're saying you can come and buy the ingredients from us. You can have some other baker make it for you, but we can't do this for you. And why is that such a significant turn in our culture? According to what Truman just said. We're making people fit our psychological needs. We are making them affirm it and fit who we are. That means the culture has to shape shift to any particular nature, no matter what it is and whoever it is. It's extortion. Yeah. It's extortion, extorting people, extorting an entire culture. We're just going to wind and twist and, and become whoever you, you need us to be because how... How dare us or any of us say that there's an absolute that anybody should have to uh, abide by? This is why the Christian church is going to be hardened. Because we're the only thing that stands between them and getting what they want. Mm-hmm. Ms. Pam said, this is why the Christian church is going to be the target, because we're the only thing standing between them and getting what they want. The Christian church will be a target, but when this is full grown, we're going to find that everybody's a target, because people have made themselves and their identity in their own minds. Mm-hmm. And when That'll work to a certain extent, but sooner or later you're going to come into conflict with someone that says you're violating my mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. and so consequently there's not going to be any rest at all. There's going to be war. I wonder. I was and I was thinking about this last night, looking over my notes. I wonder if in our conversation, and, and I thought about you, Julie, and, and what you're doing with the communicators and uh, what the young people are learning. Um, I wonder if part of our conversation has to change as we have these discussions. Because if, if Jim says, well, I believe this, or, or Danny says, well, I believe that, um, it's as if the playing field is level for everybody. Because whoever's in the room can be an I. And I can make whatever statement, I believe this or that. 
Um, and, and that maybe even was some of what went on in that room. I'm a, I belong to um, the Israelite nation. We believe that God made a covenant with us as his people. And I'm responsible. I believe I'm responsible to the Lord to be obedient. I can't do this. Please stop. I can't do it. But I wonder if, and, and this is just me thinking last night sitting um, at about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I just wonder if some of our conversation has to change the way that we have some of the discussions. Not to say I believe or I think, but God's word says. Because then I'm not, I'm not a, a level authority with you or a level opinion, but God's word says. So not that we start as it's a personal thing for you or me, but it is an objective outside of us thing. And I realize, and we talked about this and why this is a problem uh, a couple of weeks ago, because there are people who don't believe that that's a valid starting place for truth. I get that. But I believe that's where we have to start. At least in in the culture where if what Jim says doesn't jive with where I'm feeling, or what if he what he says doesn't affirm me, then the next thing I need to do is get rid of Jim or Jim's idea. Well, that's exactly what Potiphar's wife was doing mm-hmm. with Joseph. Mm-hmm. He he was not allowing her to express her identity, mm-hmm. and so consequently, he had to go. He had to go because he was challenging who she said she was, her mm-hmm. own identity, and so and that's what we're going to run into. That's mm-hmm. one of the main things that was going on. When every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. So what we see here today and what's going on is nothing new. No. And so, but it's a lot more subtle. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and Joseph was ready to speak. So, you know, as Christians, are we ready to speak into that? And that's what actually takes skill. Mm-hmm. To be able to ma- manage the emotional tension. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like it's easy for me to get angry. Or to say, all right, right, mm-hmm. and just, you know, knuckle, mm-hmm. white knuckle it, versus being able to speak um, in a way that, you know, actually directs and is clear to the point. Mm-hmm. And it actually takes working out. And right now it's not, sorry, Pam, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we always, I believe, want to affirm the fact that these are people, they are mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Like, how can I, who disagrees with me, who goes against 
everything that I say. How can I speak to them and see them as they're made in the image of God? That changes things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think part of it relates to not seeing... And not to answer your question, I think it's a question that can just sit and and people should think about. But at least part of what should come into our minds as we're in these discussions is that two things. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The people who are made in the image of God are not the enemy. There are principalities and powers and things that are uh, at war that Jesus defeated. um, That... Things that are still happening because the prince of the power of the air still rules here for a time under God's sovereignty. Uh, that we are not wrestling against people. The person who is red in the face with you and, and can't stand that you would stand there and be the bigot that you are. That is not the person you're fighting against. And if, if that's the case, God help us all. Because uh, whoever has the best guns or the, who stands last is the one who wins. Right? Yeah. Right. I I do believe he had I in the best sense, and I know that it may not have been the full flower that we expect or understand now, particularly with our own sufferings. As you're going through what you're going through, you know in the back of your head, you affirm it, that God is sovereign and in control of all things. You know that in the end, he will work these things out for his glory in your life. I don't, I'm not saying that he was looking to Jesus, but he was looking to God who would provide for him no matter where he was. Even if he was in Egypt, even if he was in jail in Egypt, he knew that God could take care of him. I, I want to read another quote to you. Um, same chapter um, in in Piper's book on um, on faith and patience because it's it's related to what Karen just said. In other words, the strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all of the delays and detours of our lives. This requires faith, great faith, in future grace because the evidence is seldom evident. That's hard. To get up every day with something that leans against you or that you know is a weight about your shoulders and have faith in God. I know He's sovereign. I know that He's good. I am not saying that I disbelieve in His power. But here I am and this is against me. And I don't have any reason physically to hope. And everything that my my culture tells me about how to gain success... All of those things, none of them are availing anything for me because I can't do it. I don't have the means or the strength. I don't have any people who I would call confidants that are with me in this fight, humanly speaking. Why is it that I should have any hope at all? And I I made a statement a couple weeks ago about this being an upside-down world that we live in uh, because it seems like what is right is wrong and what's left is right and what is down is really up. And I wonder, though, if that's actually not a very helpful statement for us in the church. Because actually, um, the way that the world is acting and doing is exactly how they are going to because of their sinful nature. So what is actually upside down about this world is the life that Jesus calls us to. 
We're actually the ones that look like we have horns growing out of the side of our head. We're the ones that look like people who are living a life that no one can compute. The math doesn't make sense. The upside-down world is, is what he calls us to, to, to be salt and light where those things are not, not even that they're not wanted. They're even questioned to exist. You're just living a lie. You're hoping that you can help yourself feel better. Your therapeutic self wants to believe there's a God, and that's why you're affirming it. Because you can't deal with reality that this is in your hands. And because you've failed, you need to run to something to make yourself feel better that somebody's in control because you're not. Any any thoughts? That was the only conclusion they could come to. Mm-hmm. And we expect them to be something different than mm-hmm. what they are. Mm-hmm. And so we are off base mm-hmm. with our expectations. Mm-hmm. We're off base. That's right. That's exactly right. The last thing that I wanted to talk through in in just a few moments is about God's plan for Joseph and God's plan for people who go through troubles in this world. And I said earlier that all of us, we are in one of three places. The Lord is walking us out of something, He is carrying us through something, or He is about to walk us into something. But He is the one who's in control of all of that. It was his abiding presence with Joseph in verse 21. God was with him. It was not, this is not a trite word of encouragement. Well, just trust the Lord, you know, like a a greeting card. Um, No, it's not that at all. This was true. His father's ministry, his heavenly father's ministry to him. The Lord did give him favor and success, not as a reward for his humility or his integrity, but because God was doing something bigger than Joseph in the land of Egypt. He was. Joseph uh, was placed in charge where he was sent, you remember? He's in prison, and the, the chief of the guard, the, the captain of the guard, put him in charge there. He, he learned how to be humble. This one who strutted around telling everybody about his dreams learned how to be humble, I think, in a very difficult place. I do believe the Lord was teaching him lessons. I don't mean to moralize everything that happened to him, but I do believe the Lord was teaching him some lessons. He allowed him to be sold and then to be lied about and allowed him to go into prison and to be there with other people who had done legitimately bad things. He just happened to to be there, happened to be there. And then in in verse 40 and there towards the end of chapter, um, chapter 39, some divine appointments. He just happens to be in the prison where Pharaoh's servants are. You remember the two that are sent there? Um, the, the baker and the cupbearer, right? They just happen to have dreams and, and Joseph just happens to be there, the one who can interpret them. And God reveals them to Joseph just as he had given him dreams when he was living in his dad's house. And the cupbearer happens to make it back to Pharaoh's service. And even though he forgets for a period of a couple of years, you think, Lord, this was, this was the moment and I missed my moment. I shouldn't have been involved with him. I should have put myself out there a different way and then I could have been out of this mess. This was my moment and I missed it. And I I don't want to minimize moments in our lives, but I want to encourage you, uh, hopefully as someone who, who trusted in those kinds of things, that yes, there are certainly moments where you must believe and act in faith, but there are not moments in your life that you have to seize or God walks away from you. That is not true. This was my moment and I missed it. 
And if I had done it, if I had just had the faith or the courage to do it, then my life would look differently ten years from now. And all that happened to me would have made sense. It would have been worth it. But now that I missed my moment, I am off the rails and I just have to settle for maybe second or third best in God's kingdom. That's a lie from the pit. That's not true. They did have dreams. The cupbearer goes back into Pharaoh's service. And I wanted to share with you, lastly, just before some questions as we end this morning, uh, a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. And I, I hope that you, you carry this with you as you think about the burdens that you carry. And, and I know that you are. In one way or another, you are carrying burdens with you. Waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty. And so that, and let me, I want to point out at the, at the least you should be thinking about this as God is the one who defines who I am. Have that in your mind at the beginning of this. Waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty, to carry within oneself the unanswered question, lifting the heart to God about it whenever it intrudes upon one's thoughts. I'll read it again. Waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty. To carry within oneself the unanswered question, lifting the heart to God about it whenever it intrudes upon one's thoughts. And our culture says if there's anything that happens to you or a thought that is that seems to fight against who you believe you are, your therapeutic psychological self, your individualism, if there's anything that happens to you that fights against that, get rid of it. And in the upside down world of the gospel... In this fallen world, it says we're supposed to to bear that with certainty that the one who holds us is the one who is the answer to it, not ourselves. That we're to lift our hearts to God whenever those intruding thoughts would come. That that's not a, a reason to go do something or to get rid of something. It's a reason to run and bow the knee to our Heavenly Father. That's exactly opposite of everything that we hear. And it probably fights against the reactive muscles in your own life and heart to say, when that happens, I have to do something versus when that happens, I need to run to my father. I've got to pray because this is too strong for me and I will go do something foolish if I'm not gripped by his grace. So I I realize we kind of went around the barn and around the back 40 a little bit today. But I think this is along the lines of thinking through how do, how do I live in light of truth in the midst of what I go through? Because that's exactly what was happening here. How do I live truth today? Because if, if it is truth, it's not just something I affirm on Sunday. It's what's going to help me through Monday's difficulties or Tuesday's tragedies. I have to be able to cling to this. Otherwise, it's only paper thin, right? I have to be able to hold on to this. Or the weight of this world will be too much. My own sinfulness. Anybody want to make a comment or ask a question as, as we close? I'll pray in just a moment. I just want to encourage you to remember um, that the Lord is with you. He absolutely is with you in this fight. He has not left you alone. And He is there for you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for being able to read in the Old Testament, to to open the Bible and to discuss real people who had real struggles, who did sin before you. And Lord, I thank you that as, as people who desire to follow you, that you are the one who guides us, that you sent us your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, to comfort us and to remind us of your presence 
and our identity that is defined in totally by you and who you are. Lord, I thank you for this and I pray for our young people today that this would be something on our mind that you would help us to keep some fuel in the tank to be able to have these discussions with them. It's important that we teach them how to learn to obey and to listen and to love you. But Lord, help us also to keep some fuel in the tank that we would be able to have some discussions about all that the enemy would love to hurl at them. That we would be able to even talk through, even through our tears, some of the battles that we have had and some of them that we've lost. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are with us and that you are with our children. In Jesus' name, amen.